If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open it to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel 2, looking at verses 12 through 26. The Lord has already blessed us this evening. It is encouraging to see new men being ordained and installed, uh, and yet the Lord promises to bless us uh, even more as we hear uh, and receive His Word this evening. So let us pay close attention. 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, "'Give meat for the priest to roast.'" For he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed, with the linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man... God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Let us pray together and ask for the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We come to it and we ask that your spirit may bless our time, that he may open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, that our hearts may be exposed, that you may help us to see uh, any wickedness in us. But Lord, that you may lift up our heads so that we may see the Lord Jesus Christ who offers us the forgiveness of sins. We have not gathered tonight to hear the opinions of men, but we have come to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And so we pray to that end, that if there be those that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that they may walk away knowing him and seeing him in all his beauty. 
And we pray that for those that are walking in fellowship with them, that we may be encouraged in our walks, that we may rise up a people refreshed by the power of the gospel, refreshed by the water of the word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. It was the the best-selling work of fiction in 1929. The the book All Quiet on the Western Front told the story of a young German student, Paul Baumer, who joined the army during the First World War. And he signed up being told of the glory that he would bring to his homeland, Germany. But it did not take long for him to see the brutality, the devastation of war, all for marginal gains on the battlefront. Paul entered the war feeling proud of his country, but it quickly turned to disillusionment and even hopelessness concerning his homeland. Fast forward almost 100 years, and there is even disillusionment for those living here in the United States. Disappointment over promises made and yet promises broken. Streets filled with violence, depravity being celebrated, And some may be thinking, where are our leaders? In our passage this evening, the people of God are facing a similar crisis, but worse. The leader of Israel is the Lord God. The Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt centuries before, led them through the wilderness with much patience, gave them the land that he had promised to Abraham almost a thousand years prior. He said Israel would be his people, and he their God. And yet Israel has rebelled. In our passage, we find ourselves at the tail end of the time of the judges, a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The Israelites were experiencing a vicious cycle of sin, judgment, repentance, and redemption, and yet it was a downward spiral for the people of God. There is a great need for order and for rule because religiously, ethically, as a whole, societally, there was much chaos. Israel was at war with God and with one another. It's a spiritual desert, though the Israelites themselves are in the promised land. Things are not as they ought to be. But faithful Israelites do remain. Just before our passage, Hannah sang a beautiful prayer, a prayer of hope and of a promise for a king who would rule. But when the song finishes and we read the following verses, we look out and we see chaos. Faithful Israelites at this time are asking a question that might be hard to even utter. Is Yahweh still our God? Our passage opens up with a moral judgment, indicating the signs of the times. Verse 12, the sons of Eli were worthless men. We have encountered these sons before, back in chapter 1, and at that point the author reserved his views of them. But we knew a couple things. One, we knew that they were priests. They were serving under their father, Eli. And secondly, we also heard of their names, Hophni and Phinehas. These names are slightly unusual. They are not Hebrew names, but but rather Egyptian names. 
It's important to remember that the Exodus had occurred over 400 years before these events. Several Israelite generations passed, and Eli still gave them Egyptian names. Now, the significance of naming our children is, has changed since then. We take names from all over the world, names from different languages, and, and that's all fine and good. But in the Old Testament, one's name often carried with it a deep significance. For Eli to give his sons Egyptian names may have indicated that this was a family whose eyes were on their prior captors rather than on their Lord. Hophni and Phinehas are called worthless or wicked sons. Some translations may call them scoundrels, good-for-nothings. We are told that they did not know the Lord. Why are they described in this way? Our passage gives us two reasons. For their worship and for their conduct. We are given a substantial treatment of what the priests were doing with the sacrifices to the Lord, beginning in verse 13. And, and it's worth recalling that the law kindly gave a provision for the priests. From the offerings given to the Lord, there would be a portion that would be given to the priests and their families to, to eat. But the best portion, the portion of fat, was reserved only for the Lord. Leviticus 3 tells us that, that it was to be burned up and it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the sons of Eli just weren't satisfied. They had the Lord as their portion. They were giving, uh, given the opportunity that, and the, the blessing to serve the people of Israel, but they chose instead to serve themselves. The allotted portions of the sacrifice was not enough so what did they do? They developed new worship practices. Our text explains that the priests would send one of their servants to grab more of the offering than what was reserved for them. And, and this is not just an innocent, well, let me take an extra piece of brisket during the fellowship meal. This is an affront to the Lord. This was his piece alone. And on some occasions, the servant would just ask outright, for raw meat. Perhaps they preferred something medium rare. They wanted to cook it to their liking. But this practice is so ridiculous that even the attendants tried to resist. They would tell the, the, the servant, please, you can take anything you want, but at the very least, give the Lord his due. Leave the best piece for him. But when the attendants resisted, the servant then threatened. These actions resemble the Corleone family rather than a family of priests. We'll just make him an offer that he can't refuse. And so verse 17 tells us that the sin of the young man was very great. They treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And such is the spiritual state of Israel, where the priests of God were approaching the worship of a holy God with a lack of reverence, with a spirit of self-indulgence, and they trampled on the blood of the sacrifice in the process. But that's not all. Hophni and Phinehas' weakness is not limited to just worship, but to their conduct as well. 
And so if we look at verse 22, we read of Eli hearing of his son's doings. Eli himself was not aware of what his sons were doing in the tent of meeting. That is curious enough, but he heard the chatter going around town. The priests of the Lord were engaging in sexual promiscuity with the women serving the entrance of the tent of meeting. They reduced women who were there to serve the Lord to be cult prostitutes, just like the other nations. This was not a secret sin committed in the shadows, though that would still be heinous. Everyone knew about it. In a place where God graciously made a way to reconciliation for sin, sin was being committed. And these actions are why the author tells us in verse 12 that these men did not know the Lord. They knew of him. They heard his laws. They were instructed in the way of the priesthood. But they did not enjoy a special and intimate fellowship with God. They did not truly know him. And it shows. It shows in their actions. To this wickedness, the Lord must respond. And he responds rather forcefully. Read this in verse 25. It was the will of the Lord to put them to death. It's a sobering phrase to read. And we must reckon with it. Because we can be closer to Eli's sons than we may want to admit. You may be familiar with famous pastors throwing their lives and ministries away for a cheap thrill or of individuals who misuse church funds for their own gain. Well, we're not guilty of those sins, right? Well, perhaps not. And yet there is a subtle form of the sins of Hophni and Phinehas that are devastating as well. How can we be like these sons of Eli? whenever we pursue personal gain at the expense of service. It is the temptation to misuse or abuse a position of service or authority to serve yourself. And we can find this in a variety of contexts. For example, the workplace. How many know individuals who began their careers with a genuine love for those who they were serving, for their coworkers, and then over time that began to change? They tasted power and they wanted more. Or husbands, though we are called to love our wives as our own bodies, we can be tempted to love our bodies more. We can misuse our calling as husbands, as leaders in our homes, for our own benefit. When this responsibility was given, not for our own fulfillment, but for service. For serving our families. And parents, we are given a wonderful privilege to raise image bearers in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But we can be tempted to discipline out of anger, to make discipline personal. But we ought to remind ourselves that the offense is against the Lord. We got to remind our children the offense is against the Lord. And then we discipline them firmly, yet kindly. But if we discipline out of anger, 
out of spite. We are using an act of service for our own fulfillment or, God forbid, for our own pleasure. This is the sin of Hophni and Phinehas manifested today. And there can be a variety of other manifestations as well. We can all be tempted to think and to act in these ways. It can be a temptation for me. How can I be served? How can I propel myself up? And when we come to grips with this subtle form of the sin of the sons of Eli, it can be scary. We can look a lot like Eli's sons. And acknowledging this, there comes a warning, a warning for all of us. There's a a penetrating moment in our passage in verse 25 that reveals the danger of sin, especially continued sin before the Lord. Listen to verse 25. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Eli tells his sons that when we sin against man, God has made a way. He is, he is able to mediate between the offender and the offended by means of his sacrifice that he instituted. But what happens when the offender has trampled upon God's sacrifice? The offended is then God himself. Well, the Lord tells us in the following chapter, he tells us, they tell Samuel this in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 14. He says, The iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrificing or sacrifice or offering forever. Hebrews 10.26 provides us the New Testament counterpart. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. We should heed this warning. Sin is serious. Do not harden your hearts like the sons of Eli, lest you be given over to your wicked desires, such as we see in this passage. Passages like these should call us to prayer, asking God Asking God to search our hearts, to test our thoughts, to see if there is any grievous way in us. Do not show contempt for the gospel. Do not trample upon Christ's blood by engaging in habitual, unrepentant sin. But come to the Lord. Place your sin at his feet and cling to the promises of the gospel in Christ you are forgiven. But as we consider this text, we might begin to sense the feeling of hopelessness, can't we? If the spiritual leaders of Israel are summed up in the likes of Hophni and Phinehas, well, Israel's in deep trouble. And yet, a glimmer of hope appears. God is not done with Israel. Eli gave his sons Egyptian names, but we hear of Hannah again. She named her son, her child of promise, Samuel. God hears. 
God has heard. And you may know the story of Hannah well. Back in chapter 1, Eli thought that Hannah was a worthless woman, just a drunkard. But she was approaching the Lord's presence in sorrow as a barren woman. And though sorrowful, she had faith in the Lord. She clung to his promise. She was not a worthless woman like Eli thought, but ironically, it was Eli's sons who were the worthless ones. Despite her difficult providence, Hannah trusted in the Lord, and the Lord blessed her. She was blessed by the Lord with Samuel. God has heard. Hannah vowed that if she would, would be given a son, that she would offer him up to the Lord for lifelong service. And she stayed true to her vow. She gave up her precious firstborn son. But she hadn't forgotten about him. In fact, as a faithful Israelite family, she would go up with her husband to Shiloh and offer the yearly sacrifice and there see Samuel. And every year, she would bring with her a garment handmade just for her little boy who was growing up every time she saw him. There is a deep contrast here in our passage between Eli's house and Hannah's house. Eli's sons were the worthless ones, but in the family of Elkanah and Hannah, we find a worthy family. Eli's house was destined for death, but Hannah's house was promised life. While Eli's sons were committing grievous sins before the presence of the Lord, Hannah's son was ministering before the Lord. We hear of Samuel's service a couple times throughout our chapter. Verse 11, the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Verse 21, young Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 26, even at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1. We go back and forth, back and forth between Samuel's shining example and the wickedness of Eli's sons. But what is Samuel doing here? Why should we consider Samuel a glimmer of hope for Israel in this passage? Well, the language of service, of ministering, is used in other passages describing Aaron and his sons performing the priestly duties. Together with this robe that Hannah brings to her son, we realize that that Samuel is functioning as a sort of priest. He is a priest in training. Samuel, the young boy. Boys and girls, don't, don't miss this. It's never too early to serve the Lord, to give your life for him. Throughout the Bible, we read of young people, young boys, some even your age, who were known for their godliness when everyone around them was godless. The Lord can use you, even in your youth, to be a blessing to God's people, just as Samuel is here. But in our text here, Samuel is a testimony. He is a testimony of God's grace to Israel. The Lord, in his kindness, used a barren woman to bring about 
a faithful priest, one who did not take for himself the offerings of the Lord, but who grew in the presence of the Lord. In a spiritual drought, in a time where people were doing what was right in their own eyes, the Lord was preserving a remnant in Hannah's house, in particular in her son Samuel. Now the Israelites received First and Second Samuel as a singular book. It's split up in our Bibles now, but um, back when they were first looking through this story, they had this complete narrative from the beginnings of Samuel all the way to the last days of David. They knew what was coming. And they received this scripture most likely after the division of the kingdom. So as they hear these stories, as they read of the chaos in Israel then, they are actually living in chaos at that very moment. The kingdom has been divided. We have wicked king after wicked king. Who are we? Where is Yahweh? But when they hear of Samuel, when they read of this testimony of grace, the people of Israel are reminded God is not finished yet. God is preserving his people. He is keeping his covenant promises. The Lord is using Samuel as a faithful priest. A few chapters later, he will be used to bring a godly king, David. And yet, He's still to bring one godlier than David. That is our glimmer of hope. And this is even good news of a sort. But it's not the ultimate good news. There is only so much young Samuel can do as a priest of Israel. Samuel functions as a savior of sorts in this book. Again, we know that he functions as a priest, as a judge, as a prophet, but he's not the Savior that Israel or we need. There is a worthy priest, a priest greater than Samuel, that this passage looks forward to, though it's off in the distance, and the people of God saw his coming by faith. Our passage ends with the boy Samuel, verse 26. The author tells us that Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. And that sounds familiar, doesn't it? We hear something very similar in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In that passage, Jesus' family had gone, to, uh, had gone home after the Passover in Jerusalem. They had spent some time in Jerusalem. But young Jesus remained in the temple. They came back, and the crowd were filled with wonder. They were amazed because the young boy Jesus was about his father's business. Samuel was a faithful priest, the last of the judges. He'll serve as a prophet throughout his life. But Samuel's unique role in the life of Israel was not an end in itself, and the people of God knew that. We're looking for someone greater than Samuel. Why? Because just one uh, generation later, 
the sons of Samuel would act more like the sons of Eli than their father. But in Luke 2, what we see is the Lord Jesus following in the steps of Samuel. And what's more, though he follows in his steps, he exceeds where Samuel went. The boy Samuel was dedicated to the Lord by his faithful mother for service in the tent of meetings. But the boy Jesus was set apart by God himself, his heavenly father, to serve ultimately in the heavenly temple. And Jesus was not just a boy, was he? He grew up like us, but he did so as the son of God who became man. We are warned in the sons of Eli. We are given a glimmer of hope in the son of Hannah. But we see salvation shinely, brightly, gloriously in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ. He is the one of whom the Lord ultimately speaks of in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we see that even later on in our passage in verse 35. After Eli's house is judged, the Lord promises to raise up a faithful priest who shall do what is in my heart and in my mind. Now, if we had a second week to look at the judgment of Eli's household in the following verses, we would see that there is a closer reference in mind. There is a particular priest, Zadok, who is that faithful one, But yet, when we look off in the distance, there is one who ultimately fulfills this in a way that even a faithful priest like Zadok could not. Verse 35 can only be speaking in an ultimate sense of the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect priest, the great high priest. So who is there to intercede? Who can redeem us from our self-serving, our self-indulging ways? from our lusts of the flesh. It is the priest who served in the temple, the one who grew in wisdom and in favor and in stature with God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great high priest who is unlike the worthless sons of Eli. He is the worthy priest, even greater than faithful Samuel. He is the one able to intercede for wayward sinners like you and like me because he bought us by his blood, offering himself as a sacrifice. The worthy high priest, Jesus Christ, spares us of eternal death and he preserves the people of God for all eternity. What cannot be done by a man like Samuel, has been accomplished for us by the God-man Jesus Christ. So why should we trample on his blood? Why should we continue in our sin, in our self-indulgence, in our selfish ways? Let us take heed, lest we harden our hearts like the sons of Eli. Christ's sacrifice is too precious. It is too valuable to throw it away for earthly pleasures. And and if you don't know Jesus, 
as the priest who intercedes before the Father, who offered himself as a sacrifice for sinners, please hear these words. You are destined to the same judgment as Hophni and Phinehas. In fact, that is all of our judgment outside of Christ. Because you have sinned against a holy God, judgment must be paid. And if it's paid by you, you know the cost, all of eternity. But in Christ, that cost is paid. In Christ, you are forgiven and spared of that judgment. So fall on your knees. Acknowledge your need for a Savior. And the cost will be paid by Him. This is the good news of the gospel, available for you today by faith. Come to Jesus. He is the worthy priest. He is able to forgive you of your sins. And as we come to a close this evening, are you feeling hopeless? Do you look out at the state of the church, feeling discouraged, wondering what exactly is going on amongst God's people? Perhaps you're looking at yourself this evening and you're worried. Is the Lord still my God? The Lord had not abandoned his people then. He will not abandon his people now. He has promised to preserve his people. He was pleased to use Hannah's son for a time, long ago, to lead them in holiness, to preserve his people so that the Messiah would come. He is now pleased to use his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest who will lead his church to himself. Do you struggle with the sins of Eli's sons? In Christ, you have been set free. You are forgiven. In Christ, you have an intercessor, one who prays for you. You have the Spirit who lives in you and is empowering you to love your neighbor as yourself. You are forgiven and you are called to live in holiness in the Lord Jesus Christ. We may struggle with sins like the sons of Eli, with selfishness, seeking our own way, but we are now empowered to love one another and to serve one another. In Christ, we are able to worship God and to glorify God rightly, not by offering a sacrifice of meat, but offering our entire lives as a sacrifice of praise. Jesus, our great high priest, saves sinners, preserves sinners, and he transforms sinners. And that is why we can call this message good news. Let us pray. Oh, great God, we marvel at the beauty of the gospel. 
a message that can transform the lives of sinners, that can save them from their wicked ways and provide them a better way, a way of sacrifice, of service, a way that is pleasing and honoring in your sight. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest who intercedes for us. And we ask that as we reflect on these verses tonight, even into the coming week, we ask that your kindness may be manifested. It is your kindness that brings us to repentance. We ask that you may lead us in that way. May our hearts not grow stubborn. May our hearts not grow cold. May we not be desensitized by the sinful ways that we may have grown accustomed to. But in your kindness, may we see the wickedness of our sins and may we see the beauty of our Savior who is for us, who has promised to forgive us because he has purchased us by his blood. And may we then walk, may we stand up as a people forgiven who are now a priesthood and holy nation living for your glory and in service of you and our neighbors. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.